This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. Got some corrections today, and we always appreciate that. We heard from Chris, and he is responding to my little episode about the prairie chicken and the heath hen. And I described the heat, the last surviving heath hen was a male, and it would go out every spring to its traditional lek or its booming grounds to advertise for a female, and there were no females. <laughs> So the, I said, I think they called him Lonesome Larry or something. And this gentleman writes in and says, Lonesome George was the last Pinta tortoise. And I don't know where the Pinta tortoise was located, probably in the Caribbean. It sounds like the Pinta is referring to one of Columbus's small ships. At any rate, that was the last tortoise, sadly. But Booming Ben was the last Heath hen. That's nice alliteration there. Booming Ben. I like that. Super sad stories, all too common. Yeah. Now, Chris also says we've got to stop the corn lobby. The corn lobby? Yeah, among other things, we're turning food into fuel and it's ridiculous. It's inefficient. I think he has a point there. Burning food for fuel? Well, it's not mom and pop farmers. It's a growing percentage of that farmland is owned by monopolistic investment companies. I've heard that before, too. If we outlawed feeding grain to cattle, we'd also free up huge amounts of land. So we're getting into some agricultural environmental topics here, but they're worth considering because it's what we all do on the land to both make a living and feed uh, the huge populations that we have that affect wildlife. We can't just go talking about guns and ballistics and hunting and shooting and having fun. If in the meantime, we're constantly losing more and more habitat, more and more wildlife. So I, I think this gentleman is on the right track here. We do need to take time to consider these things and really figure them out. It's too often because of politics. Our conservation does not depend on science and good rational decisions, but it's more like who's greasing the skids, who's going to make a little bit of money on some project. You know how it goes with politics. So 
yeah, growing tons and tons and tons of corn to turn it into ethanol is not cost effective, and it certainly does have an impact on the environment and prairie chickens. Good one, Chris. Now, I noticed on the backside here, and I looked at this earlier, there's a good question from Jeremy, and he asks, Ron, it's a minor detail, but there are two larger calibers that fit in AR-15s, the 458 SOCOM and the 50 Beowulf. So Jeremy is responding to a previous podcast in which I said the uh, 458 uh, Bushmaster was the largest you could shoot in an AR-15. He corrects me. He's absolutely right. There is a 458 SOCOM and the 50 caliber Beowulf. Never seen that one. <laughs> okay, now we're going to get to the questions that the team has pulled up for me that I haven't seen before and see if I can figure out the answers to these. So we have someone named Brandon asking, can you mix your powder? I'm not very experienced with hand loading, so I'm just kicking around the idea. Yes, Brandon, you can mix your powder, but you can also blow your gun up. (laughs) Not advised to mix powder. Never is. Some of the ammo companies are doing this to make special loads, but they have got scientists and engineers on board and they experiment under controlled conditions to make things work properly. I do not indulge in mixing powders with some crazy idea that I think I know better than they do. If it's not in a hand-loading manual in their recipes, I would not fool with it. Then we have a question from Gary. Ron, it sounds like you have a trip to Africa coming up. And are you going to use the 270 grain bullet on buffalo? The bullet. (laughs) There are probably more than one 270 grain bullet, but I think the one that you're thinking about is the one that I'm thinking about. That's the hammer hunter bullet, 270 grain, 375. Yes, I am going to use that one. I have the bullets here. I have the cases, the primers, the powder. I just don't have the rifle yet. I saw a photograph of the stock. It's just getting started for the checkering at Parkwest Arms, and it is a gorgeous chunk of walnut. Oh, man. Even if I never shoot a buffalo, just carrying this rifle around is going to be a treat. Stock should be finished in about another week, week and a half, and then I can finally shoot the rifle and build my hand loads. Yeah, long, long process. Welcome to the world of gun writing. (laughs) Now, this is from Paul. He asks, um, if hunting coyotes is not good, then why do the fish and game wildlife biologists allow hunting them without tags year round? (laughs) Yeah, good question. So it's not the uh, fish and game biologists who are allowing it. Of course, it's the the fish and game commission in the different states, you know, Idaho Fish and Game or Kansas or Maryland or whatever state agency is in charge of wildlife and setting hunting seasons and all that good stuff. They generally allow year-round coyote hunting, mostly because of pressure from farmers and ranchers. You know, it's not so much that the coyotes are so horrible that we need to constantly keep shooting them. They just realize that at various times of the year, if there's a coyote that is killing your chickens or your sheep or even calves sometimes, you should be able to take care of the problem on your own and not have to put the onus on fish and game and call some biologists and have him come out there and waste a bunch of time and money just to take care of a coyote. And there are so many of them that it's just never been a threat having a wide open season on them. So it's more of an animal damage control situation. So if coyote hunting is not good, the not good part is a personal philosophical choice. Some people think you should not hunt coyotes and the non-hunters, hunters, anti-hunters, all sorts of folks just think, leave them alone if you're not going to eat them. Others say, hey, they make a 
beautiful coat that is effective and and uh, all organic and raised cruelty free and there's no petrochemicals involved in the production of a of a fur <laughs> so use the fur nature provided a natural resource why wouldn't we use nature's resources and then some people even eat them i have heard i have not tried that delicacy yet it <laughs> probably won't but lots of reasons to shoot coyotes there are lots of reasons to not but it's not the fish and game biologists who are saying do or don't if the population were ever endangered then I think they would weigh in. The biologists would say, we've got a problem here with too few coyotes. Never heard of that situation, so don't worry about that. And I think Paul's question arose from a previous episode in which we addressed a question from somebody who said that a biologist had said, there's no sense in shooting coyotes because it doesn't reduce the population. Another one just moves in to take its place. And I explained why that is kind of a theory, and it sort of works, but obviously one minus one gives you zero. So if you take one out, he's not going to be eating your chickens anymore or your or your sheep or your fawns for that matter. All right. Terry asks, what do you think about using a 22 caliber air rifle on birds? I think it's fine. It's certainly effective. Uh, air rifles these days, my goodness, they've got them up to 50 caliber and they are taking big, big game with it. I think someone recently did a, a show in which he hunted an eland and that can be up to 1,800, even 2,000 pounds. Huge. It's the world's biggest antelope. And he took it with a 50 caliber air gun. So 22 caliber air gun on forest grouse. If it is legal in your state where you are hunting to take birds with a rifle, um, I would double check to make sure your fishing game group lets you do it with an air gun. But as far as the air gun itself doing the job, no problem. Just take a headshot and you've got them. You could probably even get by with some high wing butt body shots. Good question, and that's becoming more and more common or popular as it gets increasingly difficult to find ammunition, buy ammunition, um, get places to hunt with rifles. Uh, there's a lot of places where you got it; almost have to use an air gun or a shotgun. So, lots of good reasons to pick up the air gun and start investigating it. Hey, folks, Ron here. Say, years ago, I started on a whim a YouTube channel, and by golly, it's survived. It's actually doing quite well because of you. Now, there's another way that you can help us produce these videos and the blogs and all the things that we do at ronspoomeroutdoors.com, and that is to join our Patreon community. Just like in the old art days when you needed a Patreon so you could buy your paint. <laughs> So in order to turn on the lights and the cameras and keep these videos rolling, our patrons make a big difference. If you would like to help out, just click on the link below. Join the Ron Spomer Outdoors Patreon community and you can help us produce these videos. You get some extra benefits like early access to the videos. You get to ask me questions. We can do one-on-one -on -one consultations. There's a weekly newsletter. Hats off to all of you who are already patrons and we're welcoming any newcomers. Just let us know what we can do for you. Hunt honest and shoot straight. This one, gentleman or the woman, the name is We Love Angels Question. What should every beginner's reloading kit have? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Let me, let me just run through it here. I've been doing this for so many years, I don't even think about it. Obviously, the press. This is the big pressure device that you use to push the cartridges into the dies to reshape them and the seat bullets on them and stuff. So you've got to have that. Then you have to have some way to um, measure your powder. And by weight, it's done by, by weight. Uh, 
So you need a, a scale to weigh the powder. It can be a simple scale. A balanced scale is what I still use. I just really like the precision of those. But you have some electronic ones that work really well now if you want to spend a little bit more money. So you weigh that powder. Um, the press is going to have an arm on it for seating the primer. You could get a separate hand-controlled primer, which is more precise, but it's not, not essential. Um, and then... Boy, this year's die set, really, that's that's all. Oh, and a um, caliper to measure, because measurements are critical in this game. you got to make sure things aren't too long and that sort of thing. So good caliper for measuring. Um, and then just the components, primer, powder, bullet, and the case, obviously, the brass. That about does it. I might be missing something here. Like I say, I'm just taking it off the top of my head. I'm just going through my processes here. Oh, lubrication for the cases. You have to lube that case or it'll get stuck in the die. Don't want that to happen. Case lubrication. And by golly, I think you're on your way here. You know, there are little things like with the press and the dies and stuff, you've got to have shell holders, just a little steel disc with the right groove size to slide your case in to hold it. Um and then there will be some pilots. Eventually, you're going to need to trim down the length of the neck. If you load, oh, probably more than two times or three times. So if you take it at 270 and you load it once after you fired it in the factory load, then you load it one time and shoot it again. You load it another time, shoot it again. You're always measuring before you do your hand loads so that it doesn't get too long. I would say after the second or third loading, you're probably going to need to trim a little bit off the front of the mouth on that neck because it's getting too long. So you will need a trimmer unless you just want to reload brass two times and you're done. And the other essential I almost forgot, the handbook, the instructions, whether it's from Nosler or Hornady or Spear or Hodgden, there's just a whole bunch of them out there. Get that book. And it, not only does it have the recipes for all the cartridges, or mostly all of the cartridges, but it also has good instructions up front. So you read those and you really begin to understand what is going on and what you need to do to do it right. That's critical. That should have been the first thing. All right. Good question there, Angel. Philip, why don't we just change the barrel twist on new rifles? So he is responding to some of my videos in which we discuss the high twist rate new cartridges coming out, like the 6.8 Western, uh, one and eight twist. I think uh, Winchester makes a one and seven and a half inch twist. And then there's the PRC, the 6.5 PRC that has a one and eight twist. So a lot of the new cartridges have high twist rates because the idea of developing the new cartridges is to use the more efficient long high BC bullet. And as your bullet gets longer, your twist rate must get faster in order to stabilize it. Just like throwing a football. If you don't put some spin on that baby, it's going to wobble around. So why don't we just change or upgrade this twist rate of standard cartridges like the 270? Why don't we make it a 1 in 9 or a 1 in 8 inch twist and then we could shoot the longer bullets? And it's a good question. I don't really see why there's a horrible problem other than the ammo companies, I'm guessing, will will get calls from people saying, what the heck, I can't get your stupid ammo to shoot straight my rifle at all he's used to because they've bought the new 160 grain or 170 grain bullet for a 270, and it's not going to stabilize in the traditional 1 in 10 twist rifling. So if they start increasing the twist rate, they might start getting poor accuracy with some traditional bullets, and somebody would complain then. I don't know, it just adds a lot of confusion. Now, personally, I don't think it would or should, but I'm guessing that's why they don't do it. 
So I have seen a few times different manufacturers offer faster twists in traditional cartridges like 22-250. I remember Savage was doing it in a couple of their rifles, and I think Browning was doing it for a time. They still may be because that's a good one to increase your twist rate and use the longer bullets with. So I think the answer is they could do it. Some are doing it, but I think in the future, more of them actually are going to do it because I recently worked with a new uh, sort of a prototype model 700 Remington. Remington's coming back on the market under new management, new tooling, and they've really tightened up their tolerances and they're striving for great quality. And one of the things they're going to do, they told me, is increase the twist rate on traditional cartridges. So for instance, their seven millimeter Remington Magnum is now going to be in a one in nine twist. I asked about the 270. He said, we're not there yet. We haven't started on the 270s, but probably. So I think you're going to look at more and more companies doing just what you suggest. Faster twist barrels on traditional cartridges. Good one. Michael asks, in response to your rebarrel for a 277 Fury video, how do they even put enough powder in the case to get up to 80,000 PSI? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, you can use a faster burning powder. You have to understand where the peak pressure comes in. When a cartridge is in the chamber of a rifle and you fire it, things are tight and there's no place for that expanding gas to go. So the pressure goes way, way up while the bullet starts moving. Inertia, bullets sitting still, the pressure starts to go up. You've got to get enough pressure to get the bullet moving and then it can accelerate with that pressure. So you get a peak pressure just as the bullet is starting to move out of the case. It's probably in the neck yet or barely out of it when your pressure peaks in the chamber. And that's why the chamber has to be big and strong. And there's where all your pressures are. And you have to have a good solid lockup so the bolt doesn't come back at you. And manufacturers obviously design their actions to take not just the factory pressures that are allowed for each cartridge, but way more than that, in case there's an overload at some factory or usually a hand loader thinks he's going to uh, really improve performance by putting more powder in there than he should or the wrong kind of powder. And I think this is where they're getting their pressures. If you use a faster burning powder, poof, that PSI, the pressure spike happens faster. And because that big heavy bullet doesn't have time to get started, if you have a slower burning powder, you get a little bit of pressure climbing up and that gets the bullet moving, 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 and then the pressure can peak. So that bullet might be four inches down the barrel before your pressure peaks on that one. So they're playing around with the speed or the violence of the powders and how fast they burn to come up with those pressures. Uh, because there are some powders you can load into any cartridge that will overpressure with not much powder. And then there are some really slow burning powders that you could fill up until you're crushing. They actually have crush loads in the reloading manuals where you can squeeze that powder down until you can hear it crunching. <laughs> Seems kind of crazy, but it's essentially an overload. You've got more than enough powder in that case. So the bullet has to crunch it to make more room to seat, but it's a slow burning powder. So you don't get your pressure spikes. So that's essentially what's going on. They are playing around with the powders. And again, they're doing this in the lab under controlled conditions until they get things just right. I don't recommend you or any other hand loader try this on your own because if you make a mistake, 
you might not be seeing too well afterwards. So be cautious, guys. Always follow the directions and don't try to be an innovator on this stuff. There are engineers and scientists out there who've studied this stuff all their life and they're trained ballisticians. They know what they're doing and don't try to overdo them. Um, it's just hubris and you're going to get, you're going to damage your rifle if not yourself. Okay, so I think that's all the questions they've got on the list today, guys. I think I got them right this time. I want to thank the folks who wrote in and straightened me out on the uh, um, extinct Heath hen. And uh, what was the other one we had? Boy, I don't remember. But you guys are doing a great job of keeping me on track here. Hey, I want to thank you all for watching and invite you to check me out at ronspomeroutdoors.com, our website. And we also have another YouTube channel, Ron Spomer Outdoors. Love to have you there. And you can find me on Instagram and Facebook every once in a while. And we definitely want to thank our patrons for supporting us. You guys make it possible for us to sit here week after week and crank these things out. So hats off to you. Until next time, Ron Spomer signing off. Hunt honest and shoot straight.